This is Back to Excitement with your hosts, Arvind and Acting the Fool. From Pension Plan Puppets. Hi, this is Back to Excited, episode 105. You already know it's Back to Excited, episode 105, because of our snazzy new intro music, which features a voiceover with uh, the podcast name. You already know that I'm Arvind, and that this is Fooliman. Hi, everybody. Because, again, of that snazzy new voiceover and this really dope music. Um, so we got this new music, um, the way we do everything on this podcast, with no effort on our own part. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, commenter Caged Mercury, uh, also known as... Andrew was kind enough to to whip this up for us, and we think it's dope. It's a lot better than our previous music, which I found by searching generic copyright-free rock into Google. <laughs> so this is um, much better. So thank you to Andrew, and we want to give a, a quick plug to his uh, songwriting company, Music to Noise Ratio. I think, it, you know, if this is indicative of their quality of work, um, then, you know, they're worth checking out if you are in the needs for uh, people to write songs for you. Yeah, we are so grateful for that. Uh, it's kind of crazy that we now have like a bespoke intro. Yeah, that's pretty after sick. After all this time, yeah. And so, thanks so much for that. Uh, we're really grateful, and it's cool to have. Uh, I think this is actually a good episode for show notes. I mean, we'll start with that cool intro music that we just had, and also it's Mother's Day. So, first of all, if you're hearing this and you haven't contacted your mother and you you want to, please go do that. You know. Remember that? And I'd like to give a specific shout out to my own mother because, believe it or not, my mom listens to these and uh, puts up with the fact that I swear on occasion. But I do just want to say I'm so grateful to her for everything that she's done to help me get where I am to the point where, one, I have a job and an apartment, and two, where I can do podcasts. (laughs) That's the real sign of success in my life but seriously thank you so much for everything mom and i actually do really appreciate that even though i am a grown-ass man uh you still loyally listen to my podcast which is incredible um so thanks mom i love you it is yeah and i mean i i want to echo the same things to my mom who's obviously been super supportive of me my entire life so you know not to get this too sappy but yeah thank you so much mom i love you you're the best so basically, the, the first three minutes of this podcast are, are shout-outs to our moms, but most importantly to Andrew. <laughs> because let's be real, what have our moms done for the podcast? <laughs> I mean, my mom does listen to it, which was, you know, there was a period with this where I was like, okay, no one's going to listen to this. I just assumed it was going to be <laughs> us listening to it, and then, like, yeah. our own mother. So uh, they're from day one, respect. But also, yeah, thanks uh, to Andrew for that with the intro music. I kind of can't believe how... Nice people have been to us for the most part. I mean, we get a few people saying that, you know, we're terrible idiots with bad voices, but... (laughs) You're thinking of the exact same comment. Yeah, so just to give a bit... We'll we'll talk about hockey at some point. We actually do have hockey news to discuss. Um, But there was this one tweet about us that that said, these guys know what they're talking about, but man, their voices suck. Like, really, I can't emphasize how bad their voices are. (laughs) No, they know what they're talking about, but terrible voices. And this is all in, like, one tweet. Yeah, it was like, it, he was like ranking the Leafs podcast. And so we talked about, uh, you know, Steve Dangle and um, Ian Tullock's podcast and all that sort of stuff. And he got to us. He's like, these guys are smart as hell, but their voices fucking suck. They're awful. Just like nails on a chalkboard voices. And we were like, well, thanks for the first part 
Um, anyway, unfortunately, these are our voices, and we can only, to a limited extent, change those. So if you're still listening to us, presumably you've at least learned to tolerate them. And we thank you for that. You are the next shout-out on our shout-out intro that we're doing. Next week, we'll, we'll, do like one, we'll get one of those like Batman voice sounder things. <laughs> so uh, our, yeah uh, yeah exactly um okay right. let's talk hockey yep so the leafs made a transaction they signed a guy we love it when they do that miko Lettinen. uh he's a defenseman coming out of the khl where he was playing with helsinki yokerit actually whose jersey by the way just came in the mail i'd like to, to shout out yokerit because I ordered that jersey on a very rare whim a while back. You may re- remember that I referenced that on the podcast. And I'd sort of given up hope that it would ever come. And then it did. So thank you. And so Helsinki Yokerit has also sent another uh, important delivery to Toronto in this young defenseman. Or young-ish. Uh, he's not that young. Uh, he is, I believe, 26 currently. Yes. So he shoots left which is something that we have to get out of the way way off the top. He has played right side in the past. He says, I'm comfortable playing right side. And of course, this is the eternal issue with the Leafs because they have currently Morgan Riley, Jake Muzzin, Rasmus Sandin, and Travis Dermott, who all conventionally play left side. I feel like even if he had never seen a right-handed shot in his life, Lettinen would be smart to say, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Like, yeah, that's the it, thing. It's... If, if we're like comparing, you know, the least lefty depth to the righty depth, like lefty depth is like trying to win a fight in like the UFC heavyweight division. Okay, UFC middleweight division, let's say. Yeah. Um, and then the right side is like Weenie Hut Juniors. <laughs> yeah, it's true. There's a lot easier of a road there. And Sheldon Keefe has actually mentioned, I forget which player he was talking to, but um, he basically was describing one of the wingers on the way up. And the guy says, oh, I've never killed penalties before and Keith says okay if the Leafs call up tomorrow and they say we need to promote someone who can kill penalties and they come to you are you gonna say no I can't do it and so there's a definite incentive to learn to play whatever the team needs you to play to get this opportunity and so yeah I mean we'll see what comfort level he and the coaches have with doing that in the NHL probably if he makes it there he's coming off a pretty high scoring season with Jokerit, uh, 49 points in 60 games, including 17 goals. He's a, a bit of a gunner in that respect. Um, we've talked about defenseman points here on the podcast before, and often as much as anything, they reflect, do you play on the first power play unit and do you play on a good offensive team? I'm not saying it's nothing or that he doesn't have real abilities, but I'm saying... The fact that he never cleared 30 points in any of his previous leagues and then he went to the KHL, which is generally considered to be a higher level league than some of the others, and put up 49 is suggestive that there's a lot of team context going on there. That's helping. And he also shot yeah. 9%, which is, you know, high, quite high for a defenseman. Very high for a defenseman. There is no NHL defenseman, to my knowledge, that sustains 9% shooting on their shots on goal. Like, over any extended period. Um, I think Shea Weber sustains about, like, eight and a half. And, you know, he's got famously one of the best defense shots of all time. So, 
we don't want to get too carried away with the fact that, oh, look at all the pretty goals. Even putting aside the fact that the NHL is a harder league than the KHL. But it's interesting. Um, there's been a lot of writing done. Our own site, uh, Katja, did kind of a a really nice look at all of the, the stat details, all the information that you can kind of look up about him and putting it together, drawing some sensible inferences, looking at who he played with and that sort of thing. And then Scott Wheeler over at The Athletic, formerly of our site, did some video scouting of some of uh, Lennon's games. And he says some encouraging things. He says, you know, don't get too carried away. He's not like an offensive dynamo, but he makes smart plays in terms of transitioning the puck. He makes safe plays at times, which is can be a bit of a double-edged compliment for a defenseman. But he's a good skater. He's a fast skater, and he's capable of making a strong outlet pass. I may be reading in a little bit too much here, but the description reminded me a little bit of Justin Hall, in some ways almost, as a guy who's kind of mobile and capable and can make sensible-ish plays without really being super dazzling on the other end. Now, Justin Hall, I think even his biggest defenders would say maybe his work in the defensive zone is not always the best. And Lettinen seems to be a little better than that. Um, now we're getting into the, the kind of the weeds of scouting and first-hand opinion because judging defense is difficult. But there are some people who have a lot that's positive to say about him and his, his way of finding a path. So there are some things to be encouraged by in the scouting report if you want to buy into that. Right, but I think both Katya and... Scott correctly say, you know, don't get carried away. And, and the reality is the track record for KHL imports, for on, on defense especially, on forwards, there, there's certainly, you know, some amazing uh, KHL players who have, you know, come over. Panarin's obviously the the, the biggest example, but Evgeny Dodonov, Nikita Gusev, um, even Ilya Mikheyev. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've all clearly shown that they are quality NHL players of varying degrees. Of course, Panarin's a superstar. Um, but on defense, you know, the track record has been a lot worse, a lot worse to the point that even still Nikita Zaitsev is one of the more successful, you know, Russian UFA imports. The two defensemen who came through the KHL, uh, you know, later in their 20s and then really made it to some extent as NHL defensemen are right now looks like Zaitsev and then Mikhail Kempney who was from the Czech Republic, but he did do one season in the KHL before coming over to the Blackhawks. And now Kempney settled in with the Capitals as an everyday defenseman. Uh, you know, if we get an everyday NHL defenseman out of uh, Miko Lettinen, that's terrific. That's probably an above-average expectation. But your prior on all of these players, I think, should be that they're kind of a seventh defenseman until they prove otherwise. You know, right. I'm thinking of Callie Rosen, Andreas Borgman, uh, Timu Kibihame, uh, who are all in the, or- sorry, two of whom are still in the least organization right now. But, you know, they're, they're not bad players by any means, and this isn't meant to denigrate them, but it also just means you're not guaranteeing uh, a regular NHL player. It's just very hard to make that leap. And some guys can surprise and do it. Again, you know, Panarin's sort of the, the shining star example. And some don't. And, you know, they, they play here for a little bit and then they go back to Europe or they kind of hang around at the fringes of the NHL 
and co collect a regular paycheck. You, you know, so I don't want to sound like we're we're writing him in an ink to be in the top six defensemen with certainty because we're not. Right, and it's also worth discussing the left side, right side issue. So as, as you alluded to, he, he said, yeah, I'm comfortable playing on the right side. And a Sportsnet article said, yeah, you know, he's played on the right side before. Katya did some digging on this, and I, I trust her with this, um, that, <clears throat> excuse me, there isn't a single kind of lineup card published by the KHL that shows that he actually played on the right-hand side. He's always listed on the left. Um, KHL teams often play, or not often, but sometimes more regularly in the, in the NHL, play with seven defenders, mm -hmm. right? So it's possible he's played a little bit on the right-hand side, but his common line mates were, he was typically listed as the left D on a, on a pairing with, you know, right defenseman. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I'm not convinced that he's actually played all that much on the right side. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. Uh, we'll see exactly how that goes. But, um, yeah, th th there's so much hope in the, the least organization that you do play right side. Because the truth is, if he's a left-side defenseman who can't play right at all, this stops being a very interesting NHL signing. Like, there's just not enough space if he doesn't right. want to flip sides. So and, and, and Scott also said that, you know, it, through the majority of the shifts that he tracked, um, it was on he was on the left side. Right. So, yeah, it, you don't want to get too carried away there. If he does want to rely on his one-timer more, the one thing you could think about is that playing offside might benefit that a little bit. Uh, we've talked a lot about defenseman shooting also and you know some of the issues that we have with that. Um, but yeah, it will be an adjustment. It's a big adjustment anyway to, you know, come over to the NHL and change leagues. Speaking of Nikita Zaitsev also, if you see him in, you know, in international tournaments and from people who have t told me they've watched him in the KHL, like Katja, you know, he looks different and much more effective in terms of his play there. You know, his, his ability to skate the puck out is more in evidence as opposed to the long bomb passes that he seems to miss and send for icings a lot in the NHL. Yeah, and I think like just with having a bit more space, it gives you slightly more time to react in the international game, and I think that benefits Zaitsev a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, there are some players who just benefit immensely from that extra second. I mean, almost any player would, but... When your real weakness is just the ability to have rapid decision making, and you know Cody Ceci is sort of my big example of this, where he just he doesn't seem like he he can quite ever figure it out in time. You know there are players who benefit from that, and it's going to be an adjustment. There will be less time in the NHL just because the quality of the play is higher, and also there are some changes to you know the way the game operates. So. Yeah, I guess this is just a way of saying he sounds like the kind of guy who could slot in kind of nicely. It's hard for me to envision him filling like the first right defenseman hole that we have. You know, I mean, maybe you never know what's going to happen. I would have said no to Justin Hall doing that not that long ago. And he's kind of doing it with Jake Muzzin. But right now we still don't know who's going to play with Morgan Riley next year. And the fact remains, I don't know that this fills in that blank. Right. There's nothing wrong with this signing, but I don't think it's... it. It's a fine signing because, okay, cool, it's a free guy on an ELC 
see what he's got. If he's something good, if he's not, there's no cost. Right. And, you know, we've done this every year for the last four or five now in terms of signing players through Europe. It's one of the avenues for bringing talent into your organization. And even if it's just you get kind of mid-level or even replacement level or a little better players, that's one of the ways you keep new people coming in. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think everyone has a perspective on this at this point. We've been doing this for a few years. He seems like the kind of defenseman that Cal Dubas would like. You know, he seems like the modern defenseman who has the mobility. He's not small, really, but he's not very big either. He's apparently listed at six feet and a little under 200 pounds. And so you put that all together and you have a player you can talk yourself into a little bit, but it's probably best not to get carried away. I guess it's yeah, I, I don't think this seriously changes the trajectory of, of the Leafs team. And I think the reality is we're going to have to, like someone's going to have to play their offside. And, you know, there's been a little bit of research. I'm thinking of some stuff that Dominic Gallimini did uh, way back. There's mm-hmm. been a bit of research that suggests that, you know, that does Im- impact a player's effectiveness. It's not just an old wise tale. And actually, this is a bit of a side note. One thing that annoys me is people who are like, Oh, now that Keith is, or now that, you know, old man Babcock's gone, we'll get into the 21st century and, you know, play people on their offside because it doesn't matter. And the research suggests that, you know, it actually does kind of matter a bit. And also, Keith did not go out of his way to move guys to the right-hand side either. Granted, there was a lot of injuries. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what happened. Have we ever had all of, you know, Riley, Muzzin, Dermot, Sandine up and healthy for a game? You know what? I don't think that we have because I don't think Sandine. You know, maybe, I think San- maybe we did it at the very start of the year. But yeah, like Sandine maybe came up and then th- there's been one or two injuries at all at all points. But like, you know, it, it's not as if Keith is going. You know, oh yeah, just fuck sides, play everyone everywhere, right? Like, it, it, there's there's a reason behind this. This isn't like a Mike Babcock is dumb for wanting people on the left side versus the or wanting people on their strong sides. Maybe he was too militant about it, but it seems clear that it's something that matters. Yeah, uh, you know, he did play particular guys offside. Ron Hainsey is the biggest one, or Martin Marincin, our Lord and Savior. And um, it's sort of a question of fit there. Like, do, are we going to find a guy who works really well with Morgan Riley is what I keep thinking. Because it seems likely that Jake Muzzin and Justin Hall are kind of locked in for next year as the first slash second pairing. That, you know, that's something that, that strikes fear into the heart of the the Patrice Bergeron line when they <laughs> line up for the face-off and see a shutdown group that's spearheaded by Justin Hall. It's like Niedermeyer and Pronger, except a lot worse. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There, You keep wondering, it's like, okay, how do you fill in that blank? Like, what's the answer here in terms of does something come out of an Andreas Janssen trade or another player, or are we just running with this? I, I think, I mean, re- uh, we've talked about this before, but like short of winning a trade, yeah, yeah. you, you just kind of got to run with it, right? Like there's, you know, some teams that have had huge holes at, like Nashville, even, even throughout their contention run, basically had meh first line centers, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's not ideal, but they make it work. And I, I think that's just kind of what we have to do here. You just yeah, you just make so... it work. There's, there, there are no perfect hockey teams in, in the NHL. Yeah, so Miko Lettinen 
if all goes well, can be a contributor to being good enough. You know, he can help our defense reach that level of sufficient mediocrity that we're hoping for, <laughs> that we can survive, and then our forwards who all make a million dollars can hopefully score enough goals. Yep, pretty much. Um, the, the thing with Lettinen, I, I do find it difficult to see him as a Leaf long-term because if he's like not good, well, he's not going to be in the NHL and we don't want him. And if he is good, well, he's a UFA immediately after this year and he's going to want more money than we can give him. Yeah, it's possible this will just be a one-off. And it's a marriage of convenience, I think. Like, he, he, if he, he wants to prove, okay, I can make the NHL, and he's chosen a team that, A, gets a lot of attention, B, has a pretty weak defense core. Uh, granted, not on the left side, but still, you know, it, it, it's... If you come in and you play, you know, 80 games on the Leafs defense, defense and they're okay, you are going to get praise for it. Right. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you're going to get, a, like, three profiles in the athletic and all this sort of thing, and that's just how it goes. You know, and so, yeah, I don't know exactly how this will go long term. There are a lot of question marks now, and we've talked about, obviously, the overhanging thing with COVID in terms of the salary cap may well be flat uh, for quite some time to come. There may have to be all sorts of adjustments made to make all the salary work. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't want to sound like I'm pouring cold water all over this because I do want the team to pursue European free agents that they like the look of. You know, I want them to scout players who can help right now and perhaps provide an, an injection of some competence into the defense group. It's just, I really do feel like your prior on all European and Russian free agents of this nature should be probably not going to be an impact player especially for defensemen i mean forwards i'm more uh willing to believe in up to a point but i mean there are some players who really just make it in different leagues in a different way and it's hard to predict yes very true i I mean this is a, a pet pick of mine and maybe if you're a a Leafs fan of a few years standing, you'll remember Brandon Cozen. I always thought that Brandon Cozen had the talent to be an NHL player. He was small, he was 5'8", and that probably did him in, but he was blazingly fast and he had some skill. But he got 20 games with the Leafs and he had four points, and that was the end of it, and he went to the KHL. And he was, at one point, pushing point a game. He actually played a season for Joker at Helsinki, and I mention it, but... It's just, you know, he has the kind of numbers where you look at them and you would think, geez, this guy could probably do something, and it just didn't happen. And I don't know really how to project that backwards. So, Right, yeah, and I, it also doesn't mean that he, if you gave him another chance in the NHL, he would do the same thing, right? Like, it's, the, the line between success and failure in the NHL is so fleeting. Mm-hmm. It's so thin, right? Um, remember, remember when the Kozen had, I think he might have had two of those four points in, like, the same game? And I vividly remember, I think it was Kiprios in an intermission, was like, you know, Phil Kessel could earn a lot from Brandon Cozen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, wait, what? Okay. Yeah, wow. You know, I, I will say there's one thing that I don't miss, which was that as much as our media seems to want rid of certain of the Leafs players at any given time, particularly Nylander, man, they hated Phil Kessel. <laughs> just constantly loathe him or like we're always taking some sort of shot at him whenever anyone did anything it was exhausting but uh yeah i I think 
even the even at its worst, the Nylander hate has hasn't been as bad as like the Kessel hate from the media. I mean the the Nylander stuff really it was it was just the one year of like oh the, you know we're after the the contract dispute and his poor point uh, totals in in that year there was like a huge amount of backlash and whatnot. Um, but this year, like everyone seems to be all on board, right? So. Whereas yeah. with Kessel, you know, he was in the top 10 of, of league scoring. Yes, he had massive other issues, but he was very much not the problem on that team. And he was still getting shit on. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of best player syndrome, right? Where it's like when the team is bad, you blame the best player, even though that often doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's a recurring theme in hockey commentary. And so, yeah, he kind of got tagged for whatever institutional problems were hanging over the league. The cognitive dissonance between, you know, hockey's the ultimate team sport and the star player is the reason why this team isn't very good is always astounding to me. Yeah, because, well, there are some inferences that flow from that that suggest sometimes really good players are not going to be rewarded. Sometimes the game is going to be really unfair. Uh, and that doesn't jibe especially well with how people want to view the game. They want to think that the teams that work the hardest and play the best and have the most ability will earn it and they will get what they deserve in terms of results when of course we have all the evidence in the world that isn't always what happens. You know, sometimes there are players who earn results and sometimes there are players who get screwed by bad luck. And so, yeah, I mean that's kind of an aside in terms of the unfairness of the sport, but yeah, I mean, circling back around to, to Miko Lettinen, it's interesting. There are a lot of things that I like about him. The Leafs sign defensemen who can skate at this point. Like, that's kind of their thing. I don't remember the last time we picked up a Hal Gill type. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. I mean, maybe Christians Rubens is the biggest thing to, like, a conventional big old defenseman, but he's with the Marlies, so... Yeah, uh, it's... It's interesting. It's, it's wait and see, right? That, yeah, there's not much, much else we can see. say. I mean, it's wait and see because we don't know when this team's going to friggin' play next. That's the other thing. You, you know, who knows how long we'll be waiting and seeing. But, uh, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, and I'm glad that we're still working that market. In all honesty, a team with the resources of the Leafs should be constantly working every possible avenue of player acquisition, and that includes European free agents. And... The Leafs have been doing it pretty effectively for a while. It predates Lou Lamorello, even. But mm -hmm. they've done it consistently every year uh, of the past several. So, yeah. It, it was funny seeing, you know, because the, the news of uh, Lettinen's contract termination with, um, with Jokerit was mm -hmm. known before it was known who he was going to sign with. So everyone's like, oh, okay, this guy clearly has an NHL deal. And everyone's like, oh, I wonder what the team's going to be. You know, is it Montreal? They have a whole lefty... You know, he, he's followed a bunch of players from the Rangers. You know, it was going to be... There was actually no no real buzz about the Leafs. And then they just randomly dropped it. Yeah, it's us. Yeah, that was interesting. And, you know, and, you know Katja said he almost Lou Lamorello'd it in terms of... You know, when Lou ran this organization, nothing leaked. Like, they were pretty, you know, ruthless in terms of shutting things down. I, nothing is overstating it. But, like, it was hard to get information out of the Leafs. The Leafs have been a little more open under Kyle Dubas. But they generally seem to still have some information control. And yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say they've been that much more open under Dubis, really. It's, it, like, I guess... There, there's been... 
I'd say the only real change is now Chris Johnston really seems to have the pl- have the plug for yeah. kind of the Leafs front office. I remember during the the Nylander saga, like basically everyone was just saying, "Yeah, I don't know anything," and then Johnson would once a month say something that's like, "This is what the Leafs are thinking." Yeah, yeah. No, they've clearly decided that he is their guy in terms of when they want to get a message out, and you know. It was kind of fascinating with the Damarn negotiation where Jan. Sort of, see, I've said Joker it too many times. I'm going to pronounce all J's as Y's for like the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Chris Johnston, which is a consonant I can totally pronounce, uh, he was sourced in the Leafs front office, whereas Darren Dreger was sourced from the Marner camp, leading to a lot of jokes. And you would see their kind of dueling narratives constantly being leaked one way or the other. And. It was very interesting, and I'm not saying anyone did anything illegitimate, either. It was just uh, a fascinating contrast in terms of how the two perspectives were laid out without either side. You know, they don't explicitly say, oh, I'm hearing this from GM Kyle Dubas when he calls me on my burner phone or something. <laughs> it was I just... Mean, I mean, Dreger more or less said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Dreger was not incredibly subtle. No, he was not. I'll I'm, I'm, he- you know, I'm hearing from an unknown side in the Mitch Marner <laughs> negotiation that he should win the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and he expects that to be reflected uh, in, his new, in his new contract. But I, anyone could have told me that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing is he was so... Um, well, the leaks were so clearly in the interests of that party. It was not especially subtle, it's true. But yeah, uh, you know, it's... It's interesting in terms of I don't know if um, if Cal Dubas feels like it's beneficial to you know to try and have some narrative control that way where you leak things to the media where you try and play some role in shaping the discussion around the team by engaging with it a little bit more um, and he does you know he, he does interviews he does more media himself than Lou Lamorello did. Uh, uh, it's it's fair to say, you know, Lamorello is like the extreme of the Silent Sam kind of GM. Y- you know, he, he... I actually remember this because, you know, we would write articles about him all the time. He's so reluctant to let himself be photographed. I ran like four or five different articles with each picture of Lou Lamorello that we had. The most useful... Yeah, the most useful thing about the draft is that he, there'd have to be at least four or five photos of him. <laughs> so we finally yeah. have new photo sets to use. I had this one of him, and it was actually, like, when he was with the Devils, but you can't see that in the photo. And he's got, like, a rose in his lapel, and he actually looks like the most badass mob boss you've ever seen. Like, he just looks cool as hell, and I would run photos from that event forever because I didn't have anything else. So, yeah, it's just an interesting contrast in terms of how you operate. I mean, I'll I'll say this. In terms of like professionalizing the organization where it's like, okay, we have message control, we have standards, we expect everyone to show up on time, all that sort of stuff. I could see the value of that, of building an institutional culture. And I think that it is beneficial up to a point, even though I think some of the rules like nobody gets to have a beard or a number over 60, those were stupid. So, yeah. A couple yeah, things that's, I'll, that's I'll say. Um, if Dubas hasn't figured out the importance of messaging after the Marner negotiation, then he, he's not a very smart man. And I, I don't think he is 
unintelligent, so I think he does realize, oh, yeah, the messaging and narrative is actually pretty important, because it, it shapes a lot. Because um, he, he got screwed on the on the messaging of that of that negotiation, essentially. Yeah. Uh, the thing about that was that um, it seemed like right towards the end of the negotiation, he seemed like he was playing a little bit more hardball mm-hmm. and in then... terms of Sure, go ahead. Yeah, and then, and then like, sorry, yeah. I, I mean, right towards the end, he was leaking things saying, okay, we need a deal soon. We'll have to consider our trade options, that sort of thing. And then, it, 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 you know, things started to move and they had a deal done within a couple of days. And I wrote this up before and, you know, you can say that I inferred too much here or I'm reading too much in and maybe I don't have the, the total right of it. But the impression that I kept getting was that he really tried to approach that deal as Mr. Nice Guy, as we're going to open at a reasonable offer, we're going to, you know, not say mean things, we're not going to negotiate through the media, we're going to come to an agreement, all that sort of stuff. And it was only right at the end where he kind of said, okay, we got to stop screwing around here, guys. And you can't help but wonder if he, does he regret not going harder? Does he think it would have made any difference at all? I don't know. But... It is interesting in terms of media management how he chooses to do it because the Leafs are an enormous organization in a fevered media market. And so he has to be aware that he's a public figure in this city. And I think he is. And so it is fascinating watching how those things are managed and then also how certain things are kept secret, which brings us back to to Miko Ledman. Yes. Um, I also have one other... This is completely an aside, but I was actually just on... um, the hockey subreddit and one of the top things right now is who is a defenseman on your team who is is underrated or underappreciated can you guess Did what one of the top Lindell? it was like the third top comment i was so happy Lindell! oh <laughs> this is this is do a paper on the Lindell theory <laughs> it's amazing and so the, the the guy who like posted it um on the like the kind of the initial post uh was a colorado fan and he said ian cole on colorado um and it's like, I mean, I think Cole, Cole is like, a, I think, an okay defenseman. But I'm telling you, man, if, if you're on a good team and you're the second pairing defenseman, you are, that's the best job in the world. Because no matter what, you are going to get so much praise. You know what? Thinking about it, it's like, what would I have said for the Leafs in recent years? Because, one, to be honest, every Leaf player is going to be at least talked about, whether it's talked up or talked down. But... A couple of years ago, Ron Hainsey would have been like the popular answer to that question or something. People would have looked that year where he had a great plus minus and they'll say, hey, look, he's the defensive conscience of that pairing with Morgan Riley. And I'm like, well, anyone who plays with Morgan Riley has to be the defensive conscience. It's kind of a default move. But yeah, like all those guys who slot in will kind of get beloved. Just because they don't remember, fans don't remember them making a lot of mistakes. Because they don't touch the puck that often. So, yeah. yeah. For, oh, for what it's worth, that reminds me. I yeah. Oh, I- Ian Sorry, Cole actually does. I, I I looked him up now. His numbers are actually like better than I would have expected. I thought he would have been like an average defenseman, and he, he looks a bit better than that. So, the Lindell theory might only apply to Essa Lindell specifically. <laughs> <laughs> the Lindell theory is actually me just saying Essa Lindell is overrated. Um, <laughs> We're going to arrive with it, though. I, actually, I was going to say, because speaking of the long list of shoutouts and published papers, you're published now. 
Yes. Uh, so we meant to mention that. Yeah. So congratulations. I thank you. Meant to say that at the start of the pod, but then we actually started doing our jobs. But yeah. Yeah. Just uh, for... I don't understand Arvin's research, but it's really really smart. <laughs> yeah. For, for for those who don't know, I'm a I'm a PhD student at the University of Toronto. Um. So what we do essentially is we, we we research things and we hope to get them published and for people to read them and then for, for it to make some sort of impact you know years down the road um my research will not do any of that but it did get published which is the only part i really care about <laughs> listen it's the first step to dominance so yeah uh first step is you know modeling for energy markets second step esalen dell theory you got it yeah <laughs> that that's what the second paper's on my my advisor is going to be a bit confused by the sudden uh turn but you're doing you were doing you know math and market stuff now you're talking about this weird hockey player i don't get it um can't go wrong so, some of some of the answers on this thread are, are, are kind of insane by the way um yeah although i mean see the uh, we're getting very far afield here but I, I find it really hard to answer overrated and underrated questions because you're trying to do two things you're trying to assess a player and then also assess what how other people assess the player Right. And it's it's difficult, I think. Yeah, you know, Micah McCurdy, I, th- I think it's Micah, who, you know, he points out that you know, when you whenever you make that kind of judgment, you're implicitly saying, I'm smarter than most people. Because yes. you're saying the general consensus on this is wrong, and I know it. Uh, I, I will say, I think my one big thing is that players who, especially defensemen, who put up a lot of points are often overrated. That's kind of my my shining star, which mm-hmm. again, kind of topical with Miko Lettinen. But I I don't think. I, I think people are probably mostly keeping perspective on him, and I don't want to discount that either. You know, like, it's not inconceivable to me that he will end up on the second power play unit. You know, I'm not saying he would be my first choice, or that it's by any means guaranteed. But it's also not out of the question to me that he could do it. So, that's something to think about. Yep. Uh, okay. Is that cool. a good time to transition? For yeah, power I think, play I, units? I think <laughs> it is actually. Uh, it's a, that's a very good segue. I, di- I didn't even notice if that was intentional, and I kind of ruined it by making it this this clear. Um, <laughs> but whatever. We have cool new intro music now, so you can't criticize us. I know we've raised the game on this podcast because someone did something for us, even though we didn't actually do anything. <laughs> Thank you again, Chief Cage Mercury. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So Kelly McFarland. Kelly McFarland. Paul McFarland. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly McFarland's a singer, right? Could be. <laughs> okay. Paul McFarland, uh, assistant coach of the Leafs, uh, has said that he he's going to be leaving the team to take on the head coaching role with the Kingston Frontenacs at the OHO. Yes. So McFarland was came here this past offseason from Florida um, in kind of was seen in some quarters, including this one, as a bit of an odd reshuffling of the assistants because it it seemed as though, you know, they just wanted some fresh ideas, but Jim Hiller, the guy who previously ran the Leafs power play, seemed to be doing a pretty bang-up job from where we, from where we were sitting. Um, and the question was, you know, with McFarland coming in, how is that going to change? And the power play did change quite a bit. And there's been, I wouldn't say like, you know, an intense disagreement about this, but this is hockey news and people are starved for hockey news in Leafs world. So people are actually discussing this. And there's some disagreement about, you know, was was McFarland's power play a success? Yeah, and from one perspective, yes. 
from the conventional perspective of just finishing percentage. And uh, Catch is going to fire me if I talk about it too much. But under Sheldon Keith, the team converted on a lot of power play opportunities. And I think yeah. people remember last year, there was an impression that the Leafs power play was getting stale. It was getting predictable. It stopped converting at a very high rate in the last half of last year. Um, I think people were kind of quick to forget that prior to that, it was pretty terrific. But um, yeah, you know, there was a sense that that idea had been solved by defenses because they knew basically what Mitch Marner was going to try to do and they would cover him for passes, let him shoot if he wanted to, and the whole thing seemed a little bit stagnant. And that was sort of the background to Paul McFarlane coming to us. Right. So, so it, it's yeah. worth noting that under Keefe, the Leafs' power play, as you said, in terms of goals rate, has been great. Second in the league, actually, under Keefe, um, behind only Edmonton. Mm-hmm. In terms of expected goal rate, it is much worse. It's actually, you know, closer to the bottom of the league than it is to the top. Um, and people have differing ideas of what that means. Because one reason we care about expected goal rates at 5-on-5 five five a lot is because it generally seems to capture the important parts of, uh, you know, what drives goals. The most important part by far is location. Mm-hmm. Right? Location and then the type of shot matters a lot. And then, of course, we know in real life that, you know, if it's a rush shot, it matters a lot. If it's a rebound, it matters a lot. If there's pre-shot movement, all those stuff uh, also matter. But location is by far the most important thing. Mm-hmm. On the power play, you can more intentionally create rebounds, pre-shot movement, and other stuff that isn't necessarily tracked in expected goals. Now, actually, in a lot of XG models, rebounds are included because you can kind of feature generate that. But pre-shot movement is not explicitly. Mm-hmm. Right? So... That's typically the big thing that people talk about when they talk about things that aren't really captured in XG. Um, so there are reasons to believe that a team with bad XG on the power play can nonetheless be very good. And the classic example of that is the Washington Capitals, who have, you know, Alex Ovechkin shot from the right face-off circle. Sorry, the left face-off circle. Um, and, you know, that's not a high percentage shot for in the abstract. But it, it, when Alex Ovechkin takes it after a pass from... John Carlson or Nick Backstrom, it's pretty good. Exactly. So XG is not kind of the be-all, end-all for, for power plays because there's a lot more, I guess, heterogeneity in the types of shots that are taken on power plays, right? There, there, there's ways to kind of not break the system, but make it so that location is no longer the most important thing or it is kind of swamped out by other factors which you can more intentionally take advantage of by having an extra person. Yeah, I mean, that amounts to, in general circumstances, the best place to score goals is close to the net. In these circumstances, because Ovechkin's spot where he sets up is a spot that is less well defended and more easily passed to laterally across the zone, that turns the spot where Ovechkin is standing into the most dangerous spot on the ice for a power play for him. So... Yeah, I mean we're not um, we're not going to take it as gospel that closer chances are better chances the same way that we normally assume it at five v five, right? So yeah, so this means that so when you, when you compare the least power play eighteen nineteen to nineteen twenty, um, and you just look at the the goals for rate, it looks like it's improved, right? Uh, goals for rate mm-hmm. in nineteen twenty, so this current season, 
uh, under Keefe, it was 8.83. Under Babcock, let me actually just try and find that. It was it was quite low, 5.99, which I don't think it was actually that bad. That was probably just a bit of you know bad luck there as well. Um, because that that was that was even undershooting the expected goals rate, which you, you wouldn't really intuitively expect. Um, if we look at it compared to 1819, the Leafs' goals for rate was 7.36 under Babcock only. So okay, cool, yeah, McFarland solved the power play. Um, period. End of. I don't think it's that simple. So, as kind of alluded to, the Leafs' expected goal rate under McFarland was lower than their expected goal rate under Hitler. Um, but there's a couple things that we have to take into account when we even look, even if we only care about goals for right, actual goals, there's a couple things we need to in- consider. And the first is that kind of a couple things have changed with the power play. It's not just the structure. They also started playing power play one more. And these are two separate things, right? Like you could broadly say two things happened to change the 1819 power play to the 1920 Keefe power play. Um, which is one power play one started playing a lot more and they were loaded up. And two, the structure changed. Mm-hmm. And I think playing power play one more was low hanging fruit that we just should have done regardless. And I put that more on the head coach than on Hiller or the or McFarland, right? Because um, I believe in the first few games under Babcock, even uh, with McFarland, the top line, the top power play wasn't loaded up and wasn't uh, spending two, all two minutes of the power play out there, right? Yeah, I mean, the Babcock thing, even we, you know, we, when we were still somewhat supportive of him, we said, like, look, this is probably something he needs to look at. And one of the big changes that Keith has made is a willingness to play his stars more, both on the power play and at even strength. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was a significant change. So, when we, so you kind of gain some low-hanging fruit by doing that, and you know, the Leafs deserve credit for that, but I put that more on Keefe than on McFarland. And when, when we're trying to isolate, you know, what are the changes McFarland made, I think it's more pertinent to look at the systemic changes and how that has impacted it. And I think when you dig into that, it's actually perhaps not as good as it would seem from the from the goals numbers. So if we use Austin Matthews as a proxy for PP1 this year, um, his goals for rate is on ice his goals for rate is 8.57 which which is pretty good right mm. um and we're using matthews because he's spent all year on pp1 and he hasn't been injured at any point right. if we look at 1819 and we consider morgan riley as a proxy for pp1 because again he spent all year on pp1 he wasn't injured the goals for rate there was 8.65 basically the same mm-hmm. and the expected goals rate was way higher so you have basically PP one their goals for rate between eighteen nineteen and nineteen twenty has actually not that cha- has not changed that much, mm-hmm. but the expected goal rate in eighteen nineteen was way higher than the expected goal rate in nineteen twenty. And even though I believe that expected goals are not wholly representative of five on four success, I don't think it's worth nothing. I would rather have a power play that has a high XG rate than a low XG rate. If you give me two identical power plays in terms of goals results and say one has a higher XG than the other, I would generally prefer the one with a higher XG. I feel better about that. Yeah, if you think, okay, we're the Ovechkin case, we're the exception where it's like we've set up something where we're generating the best shots, and even though they're farther away, they're of such a quality due to pre-shot movement and other things that we don't measure 
that they're better than closer shots. If you're going to argue that, on a power play, that's more believable. It's more possible. But you still want to be sure of that. You know, like you want to have confidence that you will really are generating those improved chances. And it's hard to say. It, it takes more than a year to convince me of that. Um, mm-hmm. Especially because I think the old power play, the, the theory of it made a lot of sense to me. Right, um, whether, and yeah. this really started well, back when we had Bozak and JVR, even. But the idea of okay, you get Marner on the right side wall, and you give him three passing options. He's probably going to choose the right one, and all three of those passing options are dangerous, right? Um, the first is going down to JVR and later Tavares, uh, net front. The second was going to Kadri or later Janssen or or Nylander even as the bumper, and the third was the cross ice to at the time Bozak, but now um, Austin Matthews. Right, and they experimented with getting Marner and Matthews on their offsides to weaponize Matthews's developing one timer, and it, it Matthews one timer was very very good, of course, but Marner is just so much worse from his uh, weak side than his strong side, mm. and I think it's because you can't disguise passes as well from your from your offside. Yeah, I, I think that that's probably true. Right, also, so then it's probably better for shooters. So. Yeah, and you know they they've flip flopped back and forth, and I think kind of in their in their terminal state, they they actually had Matthews and Marner on their strong sides, but the the system was now more geared towards uh, th- that cross ice pass to 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 Matthews for shots from the from the faceoff dot. I think right? that what what stays with me a lot about this power play is it's quite reasonable to think okay, a cross ice pass. To Austin Matthews, which he then rifles, is the best trick we've got. And I totally get thinking, all things being equal, you'd love to set that up as much as you possibly can. Because it's a great way to score goals. But, you know, teams are going to play that. They're obviously going to cover that. I, You know, I, I remember, I think it was Tyler Dello back when uh, he was still commenting publicly. But... Uh, he, he was debating, you know, would it make the most sense for a team to just stop cross-ice passes and basically let everything else go on the penalty kill? And, I mean, that's a little bit extreme. But you can see teams are going to respond to whatever you think or they think the best play is. You know, they're going to get into that passing lane as much as they can. And then it's what do you do next. Yeah. And, and so... Yeah, I... I, I... The results were generally good, obviously, but I'm not convinced it was completely sustainable. And mm. I think it minimized the net front to a degree that, you know, I think the net front's generally just a good spot to be, especially when you have John Tavares and William Nienander, who are both very good net front players. Um, Matthews, obviously, he, he's very strong. For, uh, that, he, if you look at the Leafs' 1920 kind of shot locations it's a huge blob on the right circle on Matthews's offside where he where he lines up right but and I think those are generally good shots but the problem is to get those they've kind of abandoned the net front and the second most populous kind of shot zone is the right circle which is where Mitch Marner usually is and I don't really want Mitch Marner taking that many shots especially because those shots typically come because every other option is is taken and he's like fuck I gotta shoot now yeah when 
when the power play did seem to stagnate at the end of uh, last year, the eye test suggests that's what was happening. Was Mitch Marner would look around, he would say, okay, that door is closed, that door is closed, that door is closed. I don't have anyone I can pass to. And so maybe I'll fake a shot. And when he fakes a shot, unfortunately, his shot is at a level where the defense says, yeah, do it. And so that doesn't generally draw guys out of position to the extent that we would hope. Or he takes a shot and, you know, it's not that he's incapable of of beating a goaltender with it, but the reality is that's the weakest element of his generally very impressive offensive arsenal. And it's less effective. It's not what we would desire. And so, yeah, there's a bit of a, a restructuring on there. Um, I, I have to say something... Sorry, uh, do you have any more on that? I, I was going to mention um, the defense briefly, but... Oh, yeah. so, yeah, I was just going to say that... I, I, I there, there was some switching around of... You know, sometimes Marner and Matthews went back to their their strong sides, but I guess primarily they were on their offsides in this new system. And I, I just didn't love it. Um, mm-hmm. It worked at points, and it it seemed like at times... And look, if it works, it works, right? But mm-hmm. I don't think it's fair to qualify it as, oh, this works better than what we ha- than the PP1 we had before. When the PP1 we had before scored at essentially the same rate and also had, to me, a much better theory and a much stronger kind of a much stronger sense of these guys are getting tons of chances right so that that's kind of where i stand on on the power play um it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here yeah absolutely and you know there's a certain amount of mcfarland leaving may be not all that related to this to be honest because you know sheldon keith is now the head coach he may want his own guys this is kind of the awkward side actually of when you fire the assistants as sort of a, not a proxy for firing the head coach but you do it as sort of like well we need to change something but we're not willing to change that because then if things don't improve and then you do fire the head coach now you have these two holdover guys working with somebody new unless you promote one of them which the Leafs didn't do so maybe it's just a matter of Sheldon Keefe says look I have a particular vision I want this uh, coach to be in on that I don't know um, could be a lot of moving parts there I, I feel like I should say something we've been pretty hard on Tyson Berry on this podcast and my eye test does get frustrated with Barry on the power play but I have to say in fairness he doesn't shoot it at 5v4 as much as like it feels to me like he does to be honest like he's not wasting possessions to a huge extent, he he seems quite aware that the correct play on the power play is for Austin Matthews to shoot it as uh, the first preference. And I think Barry is a good power play quarterback. Like, I think he, he actually is good at that, and that's his great strength. I'm not saying that we really need that or that I want to invest a lot of money in it, but I have to say in fairness, when we talk about these problems with the power play, I don't think that it's really Barry's fault very much. Yeah, so, yeah, that's my trying to be fair to my enemies in this, this segment. <laughs> yeah, B- Barry for all his faults, I think is fine on the power play. Yeah, um, yeah. So I I don't know. Uh, it is interesting that, and it's a reflection of the crazy situation that we're all in right now. But Mark Farland will actually stay with the Leafs through the conclusion of this season. 
should one be played. So if, you know, the Leafs get dropped into a playoff, McFarland will still be there from what we've been told. We're going to need him to take on Buffalo. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way we can defeat them. So, yeah, uh, it'll be interesting. I'm curious to see who the next guy up is, because I think that will say something interesting about the vision that Dubas and Keefe have. Um, or maybe more particularly Sheldon Keefe. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. Yes, it will. Um, I think that's pretty much all we wanted to, to cover today, right? It's good to have um, some actual kind of hockey-adjacent news to discuss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't know how often we're going to get that. Although it sounds like the league is certainly gearing up to try and do some things. Yeah. In the next month or so. So we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think sports leagues now are kind of... They're, they're going to dip their toe in the water. There was like a UFC card last night, which... Um, I don't know how they managed to pull that off. I didn't look into it much, but that, you know, I would I would think fighting is, is something that's very hard to, you know, distance properly. Um, I'm not very knowledgeable about that sport, but that seems ambitious. Um, so we'll see what the NHL does. Yeah, there was... I mean, this was kind of crazy, but it wasn't UFC that I'm thinking of that, that was before. I know UFC was returning last night, but... There was one of the mixed martial arts competitions, and they were trying to keep going, and they were doing, like, a league in literally, like, an abandoned grain silo. (laughs) And it was, like, they had the bare minimum of staff. They had, like, a weird disinfectant fan. And it was, like, two guys fighting in an empty grain silo, and then, like, one cameraman, and then a guy officiating from a van outside. Which is, like... Brian Burke's wet dream. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's some like that's some dystopian shit man <laughs> that like, really is that's kind of messed up fight. yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's that's pretty fucked up actually sports in the age of coronavirus anyway so yeah it's gonna be a weird time for sports I will say also I don't know that UFC always cares all that much about frankly the oh yeah the people competing in the sports oh so. yeah absolutely I mean they, yeah. they, they treat their, their imp- well they don't treat their employees bad. like shit they treat their independent contractors like shit Oh, yeah, well, that's an entirely different legal status. But, yeah, uh, yeah so, anyway, we'll see how uh, the league gears up. But, again, they probably need to do something. There has been a ton of pushback, apparently, on the new draft rules, which is very funny to me. I don't actually care that much that they kind of rigged the lottery or tried to in the benefit of Detroit and Ottawa. But the rest of the league apparently has said no very loudly. And so now there's a big discussion between the teams and the actual leadership of the league, as represented by Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, as to what they're going to do. We're kind of used to Gary Bettman being aligned with the interests of the teams. You know, he represents them, he works for the owners, and he kind of keeps on side there. And so it's not that often that you see an out-and-out conflict kind of spill out into the open and for the league leadership to not get what it wants out of its teams. So... Yeah, it'll it'll be fascinating to see what kind of resolution they come to because this is going to be a very stressful time, but they probably have to try something to make money. So, yeah. yeah. All right, cool. Um, So, thank you all for listening. You can find all of mine and Fulman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Fulman. Uh, the music, which you're going to hear again on the way out, is by Andrew of Music to Noise Ratio. So, definitely check him out. And thank you again, Andrew. So, everyone else, we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.